let's go ahead and begin our time and open up to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. We'll dive in here. While you're making your way there, let me go ahead and open us in prayer and ask for the Lord's help. And we're going to do some meaningful things. I'm going to ask for some interaction from you this morning, so I want to encourage participation. My uh, youth students, thank you so much for sitting as far back as you possibly could. We appreciate you. Absolutely. Let's uh, go before the Lord and ask for help. Lord, we thank you this morning. Uh, we thank you for this living hope that we have in Jesus Christ, of which the book of First Peter uh, lays out to us in glorious fashion. We pray that this would be a sweet few months of reveling in that hope, uh, resting in that hope, and learning what it is to stand in it, Lord, and, and all of the implications that flow out of that to our daily lives in the here and now. We thank you for the provision of your Spirit to help us. We ask that not only you would grant us understanding, but Lord, in your miraculous supernatural power, that you would make us more and more like yourself, whose example is on display even still in the book of First Peter, of how you suffered in our place. We are grateful for such a Savior. We pray in advance for our next hour that that would be rich where Christ is all exalted. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm, I'm excited to begin a new study in the great book of First Peter. One of the, really the mantra of our study is going to be extracted from the backbone of this book. And that's the mantra, stand firm. Stand firm. Now there's two first initial and appropriate questions that we ought to ask and should ask is what? Why stand firm? And secondly, stand firm in what? Why stand firm and stand firm in what? And we're going to begin this journey through First Peter really setting out to have some clear answers to those two questions. While we do that, we're going to take some initial steps into the epistle by unpacking both the beginning as well as the close of this letter. So we'll look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, and chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Those two suitcases at either end of the book really serve as an envelope for the whole book, the contents within. And, and like envelopes today, you can look at it and tell where it's from and where it's going. The same is true with First Peter. We get a lot of preliminary information that helps shape how we receive and read the First Peter as a whole. Uh, our God has a word for these people who are scattered across Asia Minor. That word contains equal relevance for even us today. And he's encased those words in between two helpful bookends. So look at chapter 5, verse 12, and we're going to just make some progress. My aim is to try to ask some questions. We'll work through some this morning even together on a practical, practical level. Many times throughout books, you have to do a little digging and searching as to what the main objective and purpose of a book is, wrapping your arms around what that purpose is, and that's really not the case with First Peter. I appreciate that. Right out the gate, at the close of the letter, in very pronounced fashion, Peter tells us, look at verse 12, chapter 5, through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him. Now pause there. I promise we will not take so long on this. Silvanus. Who is Silvanus? Just to give context. You also know him in the New Testament as Silas. Okay? You read the book of Acts. You're aware of Silas. He was a travel companion, a faithful minister alongside both Paul as well as Peter. And so Silvanus was a close associate with both of these men. 
And those men would prove to be some of the pillars of the early church, as we know it even in the book of Acts. Now, when he says, through Sylvanus, Sylvanus, I have written to you briefly, okay? There's a lot of ink that's been spilt as to what this means. Either A, this is just indicating that Sylvanus was handed a letter of which he was tasked to be the messenger around, right, Asia Minor, right? The other is that actual Sylvanus was not only the bearer of this letter, but that he was sort of like a, a secretary, an assistant to Peter, an amanuensis, where he would transcribe everything that Peter would say as he was led by the Spirit. Now, I'm of the mind it's, it's the former, right? That he is simply tasked with being given this letter and traveling around with it across Asia Minor to deliver it, okay? So when Peter says, this is a faithful brother, that's appropriate because it gives a personal recommendation of Peter to who? He's ascribing to Sylvanus, hey, this is a worthwhile individual to trust. He is faithful and true. And that's very important in that day because you had a a growing sense of a, a movement of falsifying apostolic writings. So this is very intentional by the hand of Peter. Verse 12, through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, keep going, exhorting and testifying that this is the, what does it say? True grace of God. Let's not be ashamed about that. The true grace of God. And here's the purpose. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. A few things to note there. She who is in Babylon sends you greetings. Now, Babylon is not simply the ancient city of Babylon in Mesopotamia, right? The capital of the Babylonian Empire. By the time you reach First Peter in the first century, that had become a very small, obscure place. What Babylon is referring to, and as you look at the totality of the New Testament, especially the book of Revelation, is that Babylon is a synonymous marker or indicator of the city of of Rome itself. It's sort of a, a parallel. And that's consistent with evidence even from the early church that even Peter, when he's writing this letter, he's at the end of his life, the end of his ministry, and guess where he's at? He's in Rome. And we have to ask, why the parallel between Babylon and Rome? I'm going to ask you a question this morning. What do you know about Babylon's posture towards the the Jewish people, before God's people and to God's people in the Old Testament? How would you describe it? What was their role and place in history? Antagonistic, okay. Okay. What's that? God uses them to, to judge Israel, right? As they are, Babylon is, carries them off into exile, right? So why the parallel? Well, it's very similar even with Rome in Peter's day. You can see why this is used as kind of a, a synonym for Rome itself, right? Babylon was the center of worldwide power. And they were in opposition to God's people. And fast forward in the New Testament, Rome is very much the same way. It was the center of everything. It was the system of a government and of life which was set in opposition to the gospel. 
And when you start to make that connection, now you begin to see the context of Peter crying out and pleading, led by God's Spirit, this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it, because he knows the times in which they live, and we'll unpack that yet still further. Let's move on to verse 12. I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Why stand firm? If you're taking notes, it's there for you. Main idea of really the whole book, okay? If you were to wrap up the two sections and put them in one sentence, hope field standing, this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. It produces Christ-exalting walking in the midst of suffering. That is the book of First Peter, and it's sort of a mouthful. I'm sure there's a better way to write it, but it sounded great in my head. Hopefield standing produces Christ-exalting walking in the midst of suffering. You cannot walk well until you know how to stand firmly and stand firmly in the true grace of God. First Peter, suffice it to say, and this will become plain, is written to a church that is facing serious trials and they're only going to get worse. What's the occasion of this exhortation or this message? Let's look a bit of a, at, at a bit of the backdrop, okay? Year is 62 to 63 AD. Peter writes from Rome or Babylon, chapter 5, verse 13. This is after Paul, right, his contemporary, his release from his first imprisonment in Rome in 62 AD, the same year. But before Emperor Nero's assault on Christians in Rome had really began ratcheting up and heating up. Now, the, the very setting of this letter is one in which that preliminary persecution at this time was, is real still local and it's sporadic. But in a year or two, it's going to begin to heat up in intense fashion. That persecution and opposition, as we know throughout church history, has really been a part of the life of the church from its very inception. And just even reading the book of Acts, even chapter 2. In 64 AD, you would have a great fire that would ravage the city of Rome. Out of that, Nero, looking for a scapegoat, would blame who? He would blame the church. He would blame Christians. And then in so doing, he had now this avenue to viciously oppose Christians. And there are some horrifying stories of what wild, crazy, lunatic Nero did to Christians right here in this time. So when you read the words, this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it, that gives you a sense of what's going on. Nero is known for just lighting the streets with Christians by setting them on fire, using them as torches. This was the type of opposition and vitriol hate that was developing towards God's people in, in intense fashion. Why is this significant? Well, these are a people who are suffering, but in many regards, he's positioning them to suffer well, even now in the present day. But he also knows, right, the Lord knows that that persecution is only going to get worse. And so this letter was to help them then, right there in that moment, but it was also to prep them to live up under and live up under well to the glory of God under state-sponsored persecution that Nero would unleash. So God is really preparing his people. Now, let me ask you, was Peter well acquainted with persecution just as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Most assuredly, right? He was an individual who knew full well. 
This letter would not only have been written at the end of his earthly life, but also his earthly ministry, right? He had already experienced a great deal of persecution, but all of that suffering was about to culminate into Peter's martyrdom. He, in a few short months' time, he would be martyred himself. And history records, right, that Peter was literally crucified upside down because he considered himself unworthy to be crucified in the same way as his Lord. And so this is an individual, when he wrote, <laughs> stand firm in it, there imprisoned in Rome, he knew full well all the implications of that. Fast forward. This is the backdrop. Before we begin to unpack chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, as we look at this last part of the envelope, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That's the overarching purpose. I want to ask this morning before we make further progress, when faced with serious trials, and the people in that day were about to and were, what are some of the temptations that come to us when trial ensues? And you can just fire some off. Temptations that come our way when trial ensues. What's that? Compromise. Okay, excellent. I'm going to hold on to that one. Just throw out some words. Anxiety, fear. Grumbling, complaining. What's that? Flee, right? Cowardiceness, which is also attached to compromise. Hmm? Doubt. Absolutely. Anything else? All of those. Cowardiceness, compromise, fleeing, right? Complaining, grumbling, doubt. And so when you have First Peter being written to suffering Christians, they're like any other group of human beings, right? These trials that they're facing are no doubt causing things to shake and rattle and they're, they're becoming dismayed, potentially, being fallen humans in a broken world. To begin doubting that maybe, maybe I'm not in the true grace of God. And God uses Peter, now in this instance, to write, to affirm to them that they are in the grace of God. You know that grace, believe that grace, rest in that grace, revel in that grace. Okay. Not only revel in it, I, this letter sent to you is to coach you to stand firm in it. It's one thing to know it. Wouldn't you say it's something differently to stand firm in it with immovable conviction, not compromising, not fleeing, eradicating doubt, being assured in your faith that this is the true grace of God? That looks drastically different than just knowing of the grace of God. This is part of the byproduct of the book, Hope Field standing, people standing upright as they focus on that future salvation that was theirs in Jesus Christ. Now, that hope-filled standing, now as significant and grand as it is in and of itself, that's not the whole of the letter. Hope-filled standing produces Christ-exalting walking. Peter says, listen, you know that living hope? You know that imperishable inheritance reserved for you in heaven? You know all of that glorious hope that is yours in Jesus Christ? That's to produce something in you. It's to inspire a form of conduct in your life even as you suffer. And a form of conduct that was to do what? 
honor the Savior who had in turn suffered in their place. That is part of the message of First Peter. Hope-filled standing produces Christ-exalting walking in the midst of suffering. That really is the outline of the book, right? First half, chapters 1 through chapter 2, verse 10. Not unlike Ephesians 1 through 3 and Ephesians 4 through 6 or Romans 1 through 11 and 12 and onward, right? You have all of this rich theology. Peter lifts high the hope that belongs to believers in Jesus Christ. And chapter 2 lays out they stand firm in the grace of God. Bear with me. See if that fixes it. Their life was to be marked by Christ exalting walking. Look at chapter 4, verse 19 this morning. Chapter 4, 19. Peter writes, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall, what does it say there? Entrust their souls to a, what kind of creator? Faithful creator. Beautiful. In doing what is right, right? As Christians persevere in that standing, such perseverance is exhibited by living a godly life. They live as good citizens, model slaves, gentle wives, understanding husbands, and the list goes on. Now, I'd like to ask you this morning, when, when that type of ha- life happens, entrusting your soul to a faithful creator in doing what is right, what happens when believers walk in this way? What's a, what's a usual byproduct in this life? When believers walk well, what occurs? What's that? Peace and hope? It can be somewhat... What? Peace in your home. Thank you for that. Peace in your home. Okay, excellent. On the most immediate sphere and level? Those outside the home also notice. That's exactly right. When believers, i.e. the church, the true church lives in this way, what are they indicating to a world that's hostile and opposed to them? They are communicating via their life that they are doing what? Placing their hope in a faithful creator rather than the joys and comforts of this life. Even without telling telling them you're doing this, let them look into your home. Let them look how what kind of citizen you are in, in, in this particular country. Let them see how you walk and you testify that you are hopeful, that you are standing in the true grace of God. You're reveling in it and you know it. That you are entrusting your soul, even as you suffer, to a faithful creator as you do what is right. We manifest that. We exhibit that with our lives. Now, you've all known people like that, right? Rewind to someone in your memory that you have just seen suffer well to the glory of God. Think of their life for a moment. Qualities. Characteristics. All of the things that were mentioned earlier with temptations, their life 
They, they, they perhaps wrestle with those, at least the temptation, but they do so in exemplary fashion. Their faith is unwavering. They do not compromise. They do not flee. They're full of joy. They don't grumble and complain, and the list goes on. You know those people, don't you? Everyone had someone that just came to mind. I told you a couple weeks ago, for Natalie and I, there's a man by the name of Dave Huther. He's since with the Lord. He suffered well many, many years at our local church in Georgia to God's glory will forever be an example of what it is to stand firm and whose life was marked by in a Christ-exalting Christ way. We know people like this, these aliens, strangers, exiles, that bring God glory even as they suffer. Let's now move to the front part of the envelope, flip it over to chapter 1. We've got a sense of the purpose from chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Now let's spend the rest of our time through chapter 1, 1 through 2. It reads, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Hope-filled standing produces Christ-exalting walking in the midst of suffering. How do we stand? Let's look at a few things in verses 1 through 2. We stand firm in the apostolic teaching of God's word to his church. It's a great place to start. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, meaning Jesus himself designated Peter, Mark chapter 3, right, to be a messenger, an interpreter of the gospel, to dispense it, to share it, to proclaim it. Now, when we stop right there, again, it's a usual phrase that we, we fly over with high speed, right? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But I want to ask, what's the implication and significance of that kind of mountaintop starting point? Why is Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, relevant and important to us as we open up this book. What's that? His authority is coming from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Excellent. Anything else? Yeah, just the grace of God that he, in his departure... A, would send a spirit, right, the, the chief helper, but then also this, this team, this band of men who would be charged to be faithful, and indeed they were, right, as history records and as the New Testament records. This is coming with all the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This is an evidence of God's grace to us, even as Robin said, and so that the byproduct or the takeaway is, is First Peter a book that's just simply good, good advice and personal wisdom from Peter the Apostle himself, it's far more than just good advice or personal wisdom. This is an apostolic word from God to his church. And what should that do to us? It should radically alter, friends, how we handle and receive and read the contents within the book. This is coming from God himself via his servant Peter. Now, who is Peter? This is Peter's testimony against the backdrop, backdrop of his experience as Christ's disciple. Most of you are familiar with Peter's life. He's usually the most vocal. He had a mouth the size of his foot, sometimes both his feet, which I can relate to. 
And now this is coming to us from someone who is led by God's Spirit as an eyewitness of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when he writes, chapter 2, verse 23, while being reviled, listen, I saw him. (laughs) He did not revile in return while suffering. I saw it with my own eyes. He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself, there's that word, to him who judges righteously. It's little wonder why Peter passionately and boldly proclaimed Jesus Christ during his earthly life. This is a letter that's dripping with this hope that's grounded in what Christ has done, but also, as we'll see in the weeks and months to come, also yet what Christ is scheduled to do on behalf of his people and for his glory in a day yet future. Look at chapter 1, verse 8. Another another indication, Peter says, I've seen him, though you have not seen him, you love him. We read chapter 2, verse 23. Now look at chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder, and look at it, and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Friends, Peter, it's safe to say, writes from one of the most insightful of places, did he not? A witness of the sufferings of Christ. And his message of this living hope that's bound up in Christ has as its backdrop all of his successes, no, all of his failures as well. Rewind. Years prior, what happens right before Jesus is crucified? Big mouth Peter speaks up, oh, oh no, Lord, I will never deny you. And then the rooster crows three times, and after which Peter has already done just that three times. Cowardice, shame, compromise. Peter knows this full well, so this is a man who writes from an incredibly poignant place from his own life, that boasting which preceded his fall, but then being restored. And then Jesus turning to him and commissioning him to be faithful yet still further. Peter was a man who learned humility the hard way. Safe to say, yes? How do we stand firm? First, we stand firm in the apostolic teaching of God's word to his church. Number two, we stand firm as designated sojourners or strangers living in a temporary home. We stand firm as designated strangers living in a temporary home. Who does Peter write to? Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Who's it addressed to? And you tell me. Scattered aliens, right? Exiles of the dispersion. And what is the nature of their scattered condition? Well, just look at this map. And this is kind of the pro- these Roman provinces that are listed here. And this is where Christians would have lived to whom the letter is addressed. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Okay? Now that's a span that covers about 300 square, mi- square miles, right? It stretches across Asia Minor, which is what we now know as modern day Turkey. Okay? Now the order that he lists those provinces are listed in such a way to suggest how Silas or Sylvanus would have traveled in a circular re- region delivering this very letter to the people and believers in this region. Now, I want us to look, I want us to just take away 
and observe a few things, as you look at that map, it's easy just to sense, okay, this is the geography, and move on to maybe, let me run to verse 2, right? Chosen of God by the, by the foreknowledge of God the Father, and, and unpack that because that's rich to be sure. But I want us to notice a few things. One, this should prompt us to be amazed at the power of God and his gospel, okay? When you look at this region, one thing you need to note is just the, the diversity bound up in these Roman provinces. This is a circular region just north of the Tarsus mountain change. It's going to skirt across the southern coast. And this is an area that's incredibly, incredibly diverse, not only geographically, but also in its people, different origins, different ethnic roots, languages, customs, religions, political histories are all bound up in this region. And so while we don't know the different people groups or the strata of society that that is included in this area of Asia Minor, we are struck by the unity that the gospel produces in the past and yet still in the present, right? All of these diverse backgrounds of people here, what does the message of first people tell them? You look at chapter 2 and onward, these are the new people of God, right? The brotherhood, the chosen people scattered in the world, chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, chapter 2, verse 17 and onward. These are the same people who would have no doubt been present on a day called the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, right? They would have been in the city of Jerusalem where God's Spirit moved. They would have heard Peter's sermon. And they would have been part of the many who had repented of their sins and placed their trust in Jesus Christ. And now they've gone back to their homes, tasked to live faithfully before the Lord and for His glory. Friends, I don't know about you, but when... I look at that map and what it testifies to me is that our God is able. He's able to save people from all walks of life and languages and and, and origins and stories and backgrounds and cultures. He's able to save any and all. So I think the first takeaway for me this week was just to be amazed at the power of God and His gospel as this book is equally relevant to all. And that leads to the second takeaway. is One is, rest assured, the believers in this given area... None of their suffering was exactly 100% identical to one another, was it? That's the thing about suffering. It all looks differently for each individual. But I think part of the beautiful part, the implication of the gospel, is that those implications of that gospel, of that living hope, remains life-altering relevant to all, regardless of who you are and regardless of what trial you are facing. It's the same gospel. It's the same base. It's the same true grace of God, and we are called with the same task of standing firm in it. Now, that's going to show up in the midst of your trial that looks differently than, than Joe over here on the, on the other side of the room. But the exhortation is still the same. That living hope is still the same, even though your suffering may be radically different from one another. You may look at your life and go, you know, I don't, I don't have a tremendous amount of suffering in trial right now. The exhortation is still as potent in your life as it is someone who's grappling with cancer or a terminal illness of which there is, no, there is no hope in this life of being healed, right? What awaits them is passing on to the next life. It's the same. The same gospel, same glories, same hope, still relevant to us. These are these aliens and exiles. 
Now, these readers are identified, scattered abroad, diverse, these exiles. They're labeled that not just for political reasons or geographical reasons, but for theological reasons, okay? These believers in 1 Peter are the new people of God, but as God's people, they are disenfranchised. They are discriminated against. They're mistreated. So that the natural spiritual reality resting on their life is that their home is not this earth, right? But their home is in heaven. Which leads us to the third powerful observation that we should respond to. And that is, being in Christ transforms our citizenship. And that new citizenship radically reorients our living in the present. Transforms our citizenship. Asia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, Galatia, right? Bithynia. I think I already said two of those twice. And yet their citizenship was all in the same place. To consider them exile was not a a representation of their political status. That would be to miss the theological point that Peter is making on the outset. No, they are aliens. They are exiles. Not because they are displaced from their earthly homeland, but because they are sojourners whose citizenship lies elsewhere. Think back, where else in the New Testament do you have this idea of citizenship being in another place and beyond this life? What New Testament passage? Cross-reference. Pop quiz. Philippians 3, right? Philippians 3. Who said that? Okay, I need to know who the gold star goes to. Paul says, listen... We're not going to live as those enemies of the cross live that are around you. We're going to press on to the goal of the upper call of Christ in Christ Jesus. For why? Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who? This faithful Creator, this faithful Savior that we've entrusted our souls to will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even Fast forward to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, to subject all things to himself. Christ is superior. She loved the consistency of God's word. Friends, here's the takeaway. The color and label of their passport, right, is issued not from below, but from above. They have a stamp inside written with the indelible, authoritative, final hand of God saying, this is my child. Their citizenship lies elsewhere. These are aliens scattered abroad. These are exiles and this earth is not their home. And now because of that exile nature, what are they doing? They are suffering for their faith in a world that finds their faith extremely off-putting and strange. This leads us to the third main point. We stand firm as designated strangers living in a temporary home. Number three, we stand firm as those rescued by the powerful triune God. Rescued by the powerful triune God. Use the word rescue intentionally. You see, the chapter 1, much like many other New Testament epistles, is dripping and overflowing with salvation doctrine. If we want to know the true grace of God, chapter 1 is just dripping with it. And that salvation doctrine should prompt us, every follower of Jesus Christ, into a response that really emulates Ephesians chapter 1, that everything is to the praise of His glorious grace. 
Don't you love that resounding drum beat in chapter 1 of Ephesians? To the praise of his glorious grace. And reveling in that doctrine of salvation prompts you to live just that way. To the praise of his glorious grace. Now you're familiar with Ephesians chapter 1. Dripping with salvation, much like 1 Peter chapter 1. But you have chapter 2, verse 4 of Ephesians that says those two words that we love, but God. And you know the context, right? We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Lifeless. We are not just drowning on the surface of the water. We are dead and undone at the bottom of the sea. What we need is not to take a deep breath, claw our way to the surface, and grab onto some sort of life rung or life ring that God has thrown our way. That's not how the Bible, and even here in 1 Peter, describes this miracle of salvation that has happened to us. We talked about this at length in the Fundamentals of the Faith, that the Bible speaks of salvation as being monergistic, not synergistic. Mono being singular, meaning the scriptural understanding of salvation. Right, And I think there was really fruitful conversations, even in Women of the Word. It's so encouraging to hear women discussing scripture in really deep, in meaningful ways. But this even came up in study, right? The Bible describes salvation as being God, through His Holy Spirit, working to bring about salvation irrespective of our cooperation. It's monergistic. God saving sinners is not simply Him redeeming those individuals who cooperate with His grace. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. It's not that he throws us a life ring and that we drag it in and he brings us in. He reaches to the bottom of the sea and snatches us out with no cooperation ourselves. Why? We have no life capacity to do that, to take any measure or any step towards the Lord himself. That's why those words, but God, are so wonderfully wonderfully powerful and meaningful to us, yes? We are powerfully rescued by the triune God, and we stand firm in knowing that. I say all this to lead back to chapter 1 of 1 Peter. If you need further evidence of this, let's unpack the suitcase a little bit more to those who reside as aliens. And then notice the rescued by a powerful triune God who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His Word. Notice the triune God at work, friends. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, we need to parse this very carefully and very faithfully. This does not mean that God chose them This was a great part of discussion even in WOW study. This is not indicating that God chose them because he looked down the corridors of time and saw everyone who would believe in him. And for many in the church today, that is often the explanation to try to wrestle with this paradox, this this mystery of God choosing and electing and ordaining a people for himself without their cooperation and doing so to the praise of his glorious grace. This is not simply God knew who would believe. No, this is that God, and we'll see this in a second, took the initiative and purposed to save a people for himself before they did anything on this earth to deserve it. 
Friends, that's the essential point here. Chosen of God according to the foreknowledge of of the Father. The essential point that, that Peter on the outset, led by God's Spirit, is making is that, listen, Christians are in the church. Not merely by their own decision, but by the initiative of a God who's chosen them and called them. Look at chapter 1, verse 20. You say, Wade, where do you get that? Let's look at it. Chapter 1, verse 20 is very similar to Acts 2, 23. It states, listen, that Christ's redemptive work on the cross was foreknown to God, right? Same word, before the foundation of the world. Friends, translation of that? The cross was part of God's purpose and plan from the beginning. He didn't look down the corners of time and and see a cross and then have to adjust and, and make a plan that coincided with what would happen in history. No, the cross was his plan. So he didn't foreknow it in the sense that he saw it. It was not traversing from something that was unknown in the mind of God to to the sphere of known. No, this is foreknown because he ordained it. He established it. He scheduled it. He assigned it. Really, chapter 1, verses 2, and chapter 1, verse 20 are really correlating thoughts. That even before the foundation of the world, God had not only chosen a people for himself, but he had chosen the agent who would redeem them, being Christ himself. This one that we are looking at in wonderful fashion throughout the book of Hebrews. Before we move on, you want to talk about encouragement and hope to suffering believers, yes? Let me ask you this morning, how would this have been a massive dose of encouragement to people who are suffering in Jesus Christ? How is this encouraging? What's that? Yeah. Yeah, we are wa- an eternal perspective is washed over us. There's there's something more. There's a future that yet awaits. It is a living hope. Thank you, Mary. What else? How would this have been an encouragement? What's that? It's not up to us, right? Which is so relieving. <laughs> Praise God is so relieving. If it were, heaven help us. We'd all be in trouble, and we are in trouble if that is the case. But praise God, it is not. It's not up to us. What else? That's good. Even sharpens how you see suffering in a world that's hostile to you. This isn't chaos. God hasn't left control, lost control. He's still on his throne. Seated at the right hand of God the Father, right? Book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews, yeah. Join us for the book of Hebrews if you're catching anything there. That's exactly right. Their inclusion into the people of God was not an accident. It was not an afterthought. It was God's purpose from the beginning, and that was to reassure them. It was to steady them. You want to talk about buoy, right? right? Perhaps weary saints putting wind in their sails. This would have done this, this salvation doctrine. They were objects of God's loving concern from all eternity. That was powerful. Even as they suffered, God, has God forgotten about us? Where is God? No, he has, he's, he's marked you out from the beginning. Talking about bolstering you to stand firm. Secondly, Peter goes on to write, not only chosen by the foreknowledge of God the Father, but by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Not only does God foreknow who the elect will be and a foreknowing in an ordaining sense, but the Spirit is the source of their sanctification. Now, we normally think of sanctification 
as referring to progressive growth and holiness in this life. But while it is that, there's something else more immediately conveyed in this context. This, the focus here with sanctification by the Spirit, right? That being the source sanctifying work of the Spirit, the focus is on conversion. It ex- expresses the way God's choice of them and the effects that come from it, the effects that take place out of that choice. That God sets a people apart, right? Meaning he sanctifies them. That's what the word means, to be called out, to be set apart. He sets them apart from sin and unbelief. How? Through the work of his spirit. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. It's through the spirit of God that causes to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Fast forward to chapter 2, verse 9. It's through the Spirit of God that calls us out of darkness into His marvelous light. His Spirit works this ministry, this part of the triune God. And He works in our lives in that setting apart act. These are God's people, foreknown, ordained, and chosen. Martin Luther once said, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that my my own understanding or strength, I cannot believe in Jesus Christ on my own or even come to Him. Friends, we know this from fundamentals of the faith, right? We are saved by grace through faith, but even that faith is an expression to us of God's grace. I have not the capacity. No one is good. No one is righteous. No one seeks after God. We unpack that in great length with just total depravity. Very important to know these theological pillars and doctrines in our life. Why? Because they buoy us, they strengthen us, they enable us and fuel us to stand firm. We know this even on an experiential level. Being that Ephesians 2 person that's dead in your trespasses and sin, it's the Spirit that stirs your heart, is He not? It's the Spirit that convicts you of sin. It's like it quickens you with an understanding of the gospel. All the things, all of a sudden things line up and He gives you eyes to see and ears to hear. And that's all of the Spirit's doing. Enabling believers, not of their own strength, but by the Spirit's enabling to hear that irresistible call of God to sinners. So that what comes is an impartation of faith that leads to salvation. Lastly, the electing purpose of God and the sanctifying action of the Spirit always results, and this is important, always results in human obedience and the sprinkling of Christ's blood. I want to be very clear. We don't obey in order to be sprinkled with Christ's blood. There's no meriting. There's no deserving. There's no earning. Are we clear? Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not of our own doing. But there is an important phrase here. To obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. What Peter says here is very important. Conversion is not merely intellectual acceptance of the gospel. It's not just mental assent. Conversion involves obedience and submission where you see, I have lived wholly and solely for myself in my sin. And now I see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ by the sanctifying work of His Spirit, imparting that quickening understanding to me, giving me eyes to see, and now I want to lay myself at the feet of Him who died for me, avail myself to His mercy, and live in submission to Him the rest of my days on earth, for He is worthy. 
It's what Romans 1.5 says, the obedience of faith. I love that phrase because a lot's bound up in the obedience of faith. True saving faith always produces obedience and submission. Not to merit salvation, but to exhibit that salvation has in fact been wrought in your life. And that you are in fact his child. You are no longer your own. Christ dwells within you. And that makes you look radically different in every way. Not perfect, but it does make you look different. We spend the remainder of our days growing in his likeness. Amen? This God-induced submission and obedience leads to something wonderfully beautiful. Being sprinkled with his blood. In the Old Testament, you think about Exodus chapter 24, when a covenant relationship was instituted and established between God and his people, what would happen? That relationship was sealed by a ritual in which people were sprinkled with blood, right? And the blood of a sacrifice. Well, fast forward, we're part of the new, new, new covenant. Not the old covenant, but Christians, nevertheless, regarded as dedicated and belonging to God, relationship restored, we too have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. His righteousness imparted to us as he has taken on our sin himself. This is amazing, is it not? You want to talk about energy and fuel to stand firm? Just bask in this this week. Let's press on. We stand firm in the apostolic teaching of God's word to his church. We stand firm as designated strangers living in a temporary home. We stand firm as those rescued by the powerful triune God. Fourth and finally, we stand firm as God-dependent sojourners. We are needy pilgrims. Case closed. Peter concludes this introduction with, May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. And considering what these scattered aliens were about to face under the reign of crazy Nero... They would need all of the grace and peace in fullest measure, would they not? Peter prays for this well-being on them. I want to close our time by asking us some questions that we can stick our hands in the dirt and the soil, for, so to speak, and talk about what we do with this going forward. I just want to pause for a moment. We're talking about a lot of things and we're, we're diving into salvation doctrine that's already dripping out the gate from chapter 1, verse 2 of 1 Peter. We're already de- delving into this true grace of God and seeing it for all of its beauty and glory. I encourage you this morning, I trust that you are in Jesus Christ and know that true grace of God. If your relationship with a God, the one who made you, has not been restored, right, through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, today can be the day of salvation where for the very first time you no longer live for yourself and you see Christ has died in my place and I am in desperate need for his grace and mercy that I cannot obtain myself. That's available to you. I want to encourage you if that relationship is not restored, today can in fact be the day and I plead with you that it would. For those of you who are in Christ, let's just talk about a few Things. I want to hear from you this morning. Why is it important to have an accurate and robust understanding of the true grace of God? Why is it important? You have peace. Excellent. Okay. Discern false teaching. Okay. We're able to stay faithful and true. There's a, there's a sense of fidelity that ensues in our life. When we know the true grace of God, because any counterfeit, any alternative, 
any bankrupt system that tries to interject itself in, we, we, give, we, we give not an inch. And we stand on the gospel, the true grace of God. You said something, Wes? To tell others, right? If I'm going to be telling others of the grace of God, I better be giving an accurate representation of what that grace is in all its fullness. Yeah. His grace is enough. And if you have an accurate, robust understanding of that true grace of God, it helps you champion that very mantra. That's exactly right. His grace is enough. What's that? That's our commission? To go and share that true grace of God? Absolutely. Secondly, wish we had more time. How does recalling the true grace of God's own life enable you to stand firm in the midst of suffering? What kind of ministry does it produce in your life when you reflect upon and know and revel in the true grace of God? What does it do? You said earlier it gives you peace. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Trials have a way of beating us, beating us up. Living with chronic pain is exhausting, right? Knowing the true grace of God provides this kind of supernatural energy to be sure in this life. What else? We get to help others in their suffering, right? Excellent. Natalie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I heard you right, just increases a desire for the word. Where it, it's test, from start to finish, it's speaking of God's grace to us. I, I want to spend every day. I'm desperate to have it in my life. Right? Excellent. Anything else? How recalling the true grace of God enables you to stand firm in the midst of suffering. You know all of those temptations that you reference: cowardice, fleeing, doubts, grumbling, complaining. You know, and I think there were others. Doesn't. Doesn't recalling the true grace of God really address every single one of those? It does in in profound ways. Number three, what practical things can we do to recall the many ways God's grace has invaded our life? Uh, Natalie kicked us off there. Just a desperation for God's word. Can you think of anything else? Surrounding ourselves with others who will be instruments to help speak the true grace of God in our life, remind us of these things. Also, too, I think the counter is, I think we... There's wisdom in staying away from those who, who, who drain away from that. Not that you don't love them. Yes, Lisa. What's that? I'm sorry. Absolutely. So there's, the, there's a, a personal daily act of worship where we just get to, to proclaim these things to God with gratitude and thanks, thanksgiving, if I heard you correctly. Thank you, Lisa. Chris? What? We sing. See, Very pastoral. It's a great segue for the last hours. We close in prayer because we're about to do just that, right? We're about to sing. That's right. Should change how we sing. Should change how Kevin plays the drums. It really should. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's pray this morning. I hope you're excited about the book. Um, Just a heads up. So next week, um, we have... We're supposed to have First Peter. I'm not going to be here. I was scheduled to teach, so we're calling an audible. So we're not going to be in First Peter next week. That's, that's okay. Um, come. I covet your prayers this week. I will be in Colorado uh, doing a funeral 
for a really, really sad situation. So um, just pray for that, and then we'll be back. We'll dive right back into First Peter. It was easier to take a break in First Peter than rearranging the whole equipped schedule. So uh, but come next week, be blessed by God's word, and uh, let's pray for, for our time going forward. God, we do thank you for this true grace of God. We thank you that as we go and we stand with brothers and sisters, that you enable us in song, and as your word is open, you equip us to stand firm. That's what this hour is about, that you would equip us to, to be faithful unto you. We thank you for, in advance, for all that you're going to work in and through the book of First Peter. We thank you for its profitability in our lives, uh, that it will not return void. It will do a work in each of us that you have already ordained and established. We're grateful. Uh, I pray for... Uh, I pray for the Teagles, Lord, as they await a little one. I know he's scheduled to teach next week, so we pray for a safe arrival uh, and that mom and baby would be healthy. Now to carry us into the next hour, and Lord, we pray that that hour would be just a delight to you. May you be honored, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.